You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on Wealth Tech on Deck. Each week, I speak with leaders about issues, opportunities, strategies that move the wealth and asset management, annuity, retirement, and fintech industry forward. We often talk about the innovations and disruptions that occur around building comprehensive advice platforms. Our guests develop capabilities and strategies to help advisors, investors, and firms enjoy better financial outcomes enabled by digital and human advice. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a person who has innovated and contributed to the build of more comprehensive advice platforms than just about anyone I know. My friend and colleague, Martin Cowley, has been immersed in working with clients day-to-day for the past 25 years in building better platforms. And today, we're going to discuss the five ways to achieve tax alpha through a comprehensive advice platform. Martin, welcome to Wealth Tech on Deck again. Thank you, Jack. It's nice to be back. So, Martin, let's start with you telling our audience about the work you do each day and the kind of clients and issues you deal with. So, maybe a high level of who you work with and what you do and how that all turns out each day. Sure. So, as head of product management, I sit in the middle of several groups at Lifefield. So oftentimes I'm working directly with my team, figuring out new product features. Other times we're working with our development and QA groups to just chart progress as we're building something out. That's kind of the internal side of it, along with our research team led by Paul Samuelson. So there's a lot of internal stuff that happens. And then there's the outward facing part where I'm often involved in sales opportunities with new clients, existing clients. And as our clients are going to implement some of the life field functionality that I'm working very closely with them to help advise and help make sure that our software is being made the best use of as part of their system. So basically, you're working with folks that are building platforms. They're ticking and tying all the different elements and pieces. So I'll rattle off a few so our audience understands. You're somewhere between data aggregation, planning, proposal, ongoing portfolio management, rebalancing, all that kind of stuff. Talk a little bit about sort of the role you play, because the firms are have a lot of these capabilities, but a lot of what you're doing is in, it really is about coordinating all those various aspects and elements and then adding our own secret sauce to make things better, right? Yeah. So a lot of it is in understanding the setup that our clients have, because everybody's different. There's a lot of proprietary systems that have been built over the years. Sometimes they've come together as part of acquisitions. So all of our clients, completely different from each other. There may be some common themes, but the actual systems that they have and the combination of systems that they have is very different. I'd say even the combination of functions that they're trying to provide for their advisors is different. Um, Some firms Mm -hmm. put more emphasis on planning than others, for example. Um, Others may be more keen on managed products that are run in-house as opposed to letting advisors customize. So we see a lot of different situations there with a lot of different tools. So I think a lot of what I have to do and what my team has to do is figure out in each unique client circumstance, what's the best place to put Lifefield? We we have so many different functions now. Um, we have to figure out where's the best place to start to get something up and running quickly. Where's the best place to start for a client that's implementing Lifefield and where should they go next? It's like a a roadmap in its own right. Gotcha. 
We've been hearing this term hyper-personalization become the new buzzword. And we'll get into taxes in a moment. Often it's referring to that, but beyond. And as you in particular have worked with various firms on putting it all together, issues of cost, risk, tax, social security all come together. And so in a lot of ways, you're coordinating those various aspects and elements of the that ecosystem. I know your favorite word there, Martin, but the, the idea is that you're pulling it all together and ultimately trying to improve outcomes for clients. Isn't that basically what you do each day? Yes, absolutely. There's an end state that people might be looking for, which where you've got all of the life yield functionality turned on, everything's tightly coordinated, everything's being run at the household level. But then there's the reality of the fact that so many systems have been in existence for quite a while and they're pretty entrenched. There's some very mature workflows and processes that people have around managing individual accounts. So we have to respect that. We don't assume, we can't assume that we can replace any of those things. Really, we're trying to build the connected tissue between these various systems Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to help them coordinate as best they can. Gotcha. So the platforms you work on at some of the biggest firms in the world, literally the, the wealth management firms, and we also do a lot of work with insurance companies. We work with asset managers. We work with a variety of different types of firms. They each come at it from a slightly different angle based on where they are in the marketplace. But ultimately, it's about helping the advisors be more productive and effective and also helping clients improve their financial results. That's fundamentally what you work on day in and day out. And as we just discussed That's around reducing taxes, managing risk, minimizing taxes, and maximizing Social Security. So for today, we're going to focus on taxes. And let's start by identifying the five ways to improve tax alpha at a high level, and then we'll get into the detail in a little bit. Sure. So the way we look at it, we've divided it up into five different buckets as far as how you can improve tax alpha. And any one of these can be implemented by itself, but as you implement more of them, they kind of play off each other and you get an enhanced benefit. So the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts when we put these five pieces of tax alpha in place. Mm-hmm. And some of them are very widely used already in certain respects. So one that's very widely used is tax harvesting. So loss harvesting to offset gain realization later and the taxes that would be due on realized gains. But if you look at that historically, um, It would often be something that was a specific request from a client to an advisor at the end of the year, because they know at the end of the year how their taxes have played out from trading earlier in the year. So there becomes that kind of reconciliation at the end of the year to try and negate any tax impact. And tax harvesting was used to do that, still is today. Now, what's common is doing tax harvesting on an individual account which is definitely a valuable thing. If you do it across accounts, multiple taxable accounts, then you've got a larger pool of tax lots to pick from. So that by definition ends up giving you more freedom, more leeway, you can be more efficient when you look at it across accounts. And the other aspect of it is that it needn't be a end of year process. This can be something that happens Mm -hmm. all the way through the year. We often refer to some of the work that we do, whether it's in tax harvesting or in asset location, you refer to certain things as opportunistic. You're just looking for an opportunity to arise when the market moves in a certain way, or if a client has a cash inflow or a cash outflow, or they bring a new account across. All of those are opportunities to 
refine that client's household and make improvements through tax harvesting. Gotcha. Gotcha. So we do tax harvesting, but we, we like to think of it as broader than uh, just one account running on a clock. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, because one of the things that you deal with every day, I, I certainly have found myself in conversations the industry is founded over the past 40 years, four decades, around individual accounts and individual tech products. Everything was sort of bought in a serial fashion. Not terribly well coordinated. A little bit of asset allocation, but often because they have two or three custodians, it's not very well coordinated, to be honest, uh, as you all see. You see every day because you see lots of client households. So talk a little bit about the distinction between single account management in a serial fashion versus coordinated multi-account. I mean, that's a huge difference, which most people don't fully understand or appreciate. So maybe talk about that single account management versus multi-account management. Sure. So in terms of single account, the style that everybody's used to, you're working on an individual account with a set of holdings and some people might be picking stocks. More likely these days, people are running it to some kind of model, some form of pre-selected security weights they're trying to rebalance to or at least the category level, asset class level weights that they have to try and adhere to. So that in itself is a product that's a, a very well-established and a beneficial product in helping to control risk and give certain opportunities for tax harvesting. But they're limited because it's a silo. The, the single account is a silo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, when you think about an advisor, as soon as an advisor has more than one client account, then... Traditionally, what they've really had to do was set up two separate accounts or however many separate accounts it is. They can manage those accounts in whichever way they can put different products in those accounts. So having multiple accounts is something that every client has. And a lot of advisors are already having to deal with. But there's some opportunities there that not everybody's taking advantage of. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned from the most straightforward tax harvesting view, the fact that you can see multiple tax lots across more than one account gives you more room for efficiency. It gives you more tax lots to pick from, putting it simply. <clears throat> so you can be more selective about what you pick. Um, you can do a better job in harvesting losses and avoiding gains. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's not limited to that by any means. Tax harvesting can be, uh, it can sit alongside asset location. And we really put a lot of emphasis on asset location. We have done over the years. Asset location, for the most part, is by definition, a multi-account exercise, where rather than managing an account one at a time to some set allocation that's specific to that account, if you elevate the allocation up a level so that it spans multiple accounts, so if you elevate somebody's asset allocation up so that it runs across the various accounts that they have, then that's another opportunity for tax efficiency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This time through avoiding the taxes, moving tax inefficient asset classes out of the way of the taxes by moving them out of taxable accounts. So we put a lot of emphasis on location over the years to try and improve the after-tax return of the portfolio not just look at the pre-tax return. Mark, talk a little bit about that, because for those that are not familiar with asset location, or they've heard about it, and they've heard it's a, an important thing. Why is it so important? I know the answer, obviously, but I'm curious, as you might explain it to someone who's a little less familiar, but essentially all, all you're doing is putting the most, the appropriate assets in the appropriate accounts, 
using basically Roth or IRAs to protect more volatile assets or more taxable assets, and then taking the longer-term equities as an example in the qualified, excuse me, in the taxable account. So you're really sort of leveraging that. But I know why why that is. Maybe you can explain why why the big impact, and also how does that translate into a household portfolio versus a single account? Okay, so. A lot of the time when somebody's setting a target allocation, whether it's for an individual account or a portfolio, there's a focus on the return, on the anticipated return. And it's mostly pre-tax return that goes alongside an asset allocation. And that's perfectly fine. We look at pre-tax return as well. As soon as you actually implement a target allocation across even just a single account, if it's a taxable account, then you have some kind of tax footprint on that account. We'll sometimes refer to it as tax drag. We'll also talk about after-tax return. So putting the spotlight on the return of a portfolio after taxes are taken out rather than only looking at pre-tax. And that's very highly customized to an individual client because their tax situations are different. Their split between their taxable assets and their qualified assets is different. They have different products with different tax characteristics. So there's a lot of moving parts that all go together to managing a multi-account portfolio. Mm -hmm. Now, what asset location is all about is, say I had some equity position, I had small cap equity, and I had an allocation to small cap equity, and I needed to figure out where's the best place to put it. So if I were to hypothetically put that small cap equity, especially if it's actively managed, and there's a lot of turnover, meaning a lot of gain realization in a given year, then it's going to be potentially quite tax inefficient. A certain amount of the return is going to go out straight out the door to taxes. And if it's highly active, there's potential short-term gain realization that's going to get taxed at a client's ordinary income tax rate. So that's an example of a tax inefficient asset in a taxable account where given the choice, you'd try and shelter it in a qualified account where all of the growth is Mm tax-free. So that's one side of the location coin. And another one that's kind of the opposite side of the coin is if I were to think about municipal bonds. Municipal bonds have no um, tax impact, assuming they're state munis. And so they wouldn't be a good choice in a qualified account. You'd gain nothing by placing them in a qualified account If it was a tax-deferred account, you're actually incurring taxes later when you make the withdrawal. So that's an example of something that's best placed in a taxable Mm -hmm. account if you you have room. And it's the if you have room that's always the problem with asset location. There's a lot of guidance in the industry about here's an asset class that's a good fit for a qualified account. Here's another asset class that's a good fit for a taxable account. But when you think about every client's taxes being different, their tax situation is different, everybody having different account capacities, then um, it's not as simple as that. There has to be, there's some Mm trade-offs and we're we're big on the trade-offs, implementing those trade-offs in a simple way. Talk a little bit about how asset location can preclude or not prevent, but we'll, we'll make it so that from a tax loss harvesting standpoint, you may not have to do it as much if you do the asset location properly. So explain that dynamic, that interplay. Sure. So going back to that example where we had the active small cap sheltered in a qualified account because it was tax inefficient, 
that tax inefficiency is largely due to the turnover um, of an actively managed asset class. Now, if on the other hand, I move that into a taxable account, then there are some opportunities there because if it were more volatile and there's it's being sold and replaced more frequently, there's more trading activity, then that also means there's the potential for uh, more tax loss harvesting opportunities. So it becomes a balancing act. Be better off placing an asset class in a taxable account to be able to make use of that tax loss harvesting as the market moves up and down? Or are you better off hiding it in a qualified account so that it's tax-free? So it's a question of which is the more valuable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what we generally find on the tax harvesting front is that it is a very valuable exercise, especially early on. But some of the opportunities for tax loss harvesting dissipate over time. When you think about somebody who's got a very mature portfolio, it doesn't really matter if the market drops, they may still be at a gain. So they don't have that opportunity to harvest the losses. Mm-hmm. Whereas placing it in the qualified account, we can do a couple of different things with that. We can firstly shelter it from taxes and allow everything to grow tax-free. But we can also do a little bit more with tax-free versus tax-deferred accounts in that we can help grow the tax-free assets and help minimize RMDs on the tax-deferred by correct asset location. Now, the fact that we tend to do that means that that opportunity for loss harvesting in the taxable account is reduced. Right. But a better impact for the client, ultimately. Right. Especially over the long term. You know, tax harvesting is good. It's part of our our toolkit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, asset location does mitigate the need for tax loss harvesting, especially considering that it dissipates over time. Let's move on to talk about transitions, but keeping in mind asset location and and tax loss harvesting because there's a dynamic nature to everything you're describing. It's not it's no one thing that and maybe asset location has more impact if you were to separate it out, but ultimately all this stuff works together and that's really where the challenge and the complexity comes in, correct? When you're looking at a transition, um, it's another opportunity for tax efficiency um, to be built into something that has the potential to be tax inefficient liquidating a portfolio and then reinvesting from scratch is tax inefficient. But putting some controls on a transition from an existing set of assets over to a new model can be made a lot more efficient by putting controls on gain realization and potentially breaking up the move from existing assets to a new set of assets over a year or more, depending on what works for the clients and their their appetite for taxes. Gotcha. Let's talk a little bit about the last two, rebalancing, household level rebalancing, and what we call retirement income sourcing. And that's really where, you again, you're looking at the full portfolio. It's not any one account on its own, but rather how they combine together. And they're kind of two sides of the same coin in terms of rebalancing, and then also how that plays out in terms of income generation. But why don't you talk a little bit about how those two come together? Sure. So rebalancing is very well established, obviously. What we focus on is household rebalancing. And household rebalancing can isn't as simple as it sounds either. It's not just running a rebalance across a set of accounts as if they were one account. In practice with our clients, we often see an investment portfolio that comprises a lot of different accounts that are managed in different ways. We might have a hybrid portfolio that contains some UMAs. It may have an SMA or two. 
It may have some advisor discretionary accounts. It could even have an account that the client manages. It's a real mixed bag. So what we have done is we've allowed Lifefield to be used as a tax overlay across an existing set of accounts. And we can turn on as much control over those accounts as somebody's, um, somebody wants in a given scenario. We can work alongside managed accounts. We're aware of the rules involved in rebalancing a managed account. We can take in the managed account models. We can even suggest models that get applied to a managed account. So downstream account rebalancing systems don't need to know that they're being run as part of a household. So that's kind of how we've thought about how we can add value to a set of accounts that are being managed together without disrupting things too much. And really what you're saying, Martin, is it's when you're doing a household level rebalance, you're you're factoring in things like tax loss harvesting and asset location and all of that. So you're keeping the, not only you're meeting the risk profile or the asset allocation, but you're doing so in a tax efficient way because markets go up and down every day. And so you're always trying to keep it on balance and take that to the next step. So when it comes time to start drawing an income, whether it's an ad hoc withdrawal or a ongoing systematic withdrawal or retirement income stream, talk a little bit about how that then translates to the income generation side of things. So there's even more moving parts when you get to that. What we look at, and we've done some of this for our own internal research to just prove how well asset location and tax harvesting and some of the other things that we do, how well they pan out over time. But it also is useful as a product in its own right um, through the API that we now offer. Mm. So income sourcing takes a portfolio and it's a multi-account portfolio which can have asset location turned on. It can be doing ongoing tax loss harvesting, household rebalancing, can be doing all of those things. But in practice, when somebody's running their household, they're not just looking at their investment portfolio. They've got income from various sources while they're still working. They've got expenses while they're still working and after retirement. Even after retirement, they've got social security benefits and various other um, income streams from annuities and other places. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. really what we've done as part of income sourcing is we've got our core engine, which is responsible for rebalancing location tax harvesting. And then we've wrapped that in a process that's able to run that portfolio over multiple years, do a detailed job on tax calculations at the federal and state level, try out different strategies for Roth conversions, look at different ways in which withdrawals can be made across the accounts. There's all kinds of switches that you can turn on and off, then see how that pans out over time and potentially do some comparisons between different approaches. And also uh, RMDs in terms of factoring that into the mix as to the timing, both of for Roth conversion and RMD, what's the timing, what makes sense given what their income, well, you describe them you know, far better than I. Yeah. So as far as withdrawal sequencing, not another aspect to that. Another aspect to that is Roth conversions. So Roth conversions are paying taxes now, ideally in a, in a low tax year, such as when you're in that transitional period between finishing working and RMDs kicking in on tax deferred accounts or social security income kicking in, assuming somebody's delaying their Social Security benefits. 
So there's that window where you can potentially make some cheap Roth conversions, pay a limited amount of tax up front, but then save big time on taxes later on, either for yourself or to the eventual heirs of those Roths. Mm-hmm. So the other aspect of it is that RMDs um, get reduced if you're doing Roth conversions. Even if you don't convert the entire tax-deferred account to Roth, the more you convert, the lower your RMDs are going to be. And RMDs can kick somebody up into a higher tax bracket than they might want. They at least cause more tax liability than they want, whether they go into another bracket or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those are some examples of the kind of interdependencies between all of these topics when we're running it as part of income sourcing over a long period of time. And one important thing that I just stress with this, this follows the same theme that I mentioned for household rebalancing and tax harvesting and and asset location. We don't assume that we're taking over from existing systems. We were very careful in building our income sourcing product as an API we are very careful to design it in such a way that it plugs into planning. It doesn't replace planning. It becomes part of a workflow. And we like to think of it as a bridge between planning and implementation. That's just a really natural flow. So you think of an advisor going through the planning exercise. That's pretty involved. It has certain inputs and outputs. There's a lot of Monte Carlo simulation involved. The next step in the workflow, rather than jumping straight into implementation with product selection, is income sourcing to then do a reduced analysis that tries out running that portfolio over some period of time and then with different tactics turned on, seeing what the outcome is for the client. The very first step of that analysis becomes the implementation step, the immediate implementation step for the advisor. So it becomes a pretty powerful story between planning and implementation. So, Martin, I'm going to try to use a metaphor here. <laughs> I might be stretching it, but here goes. Wizard of Oz. The wizard's back there moving all these dials and bells and whistles and all that, trying to help uh, Dorothy get home. Essentially, and I'm not going to say you're the wizard, but you're close. You're the closest thing we got right now. Anyway, <laughs> the idea is that essentially what you just described is around asset location by getting the right asset allocation in the right accounts. You can save on taxes. And as you accumulate assets over decades, hopefully, you'll have more money. Basically, you pay less in taxes, you have more money, it compounds grow. So asset location was the first thing we described. The second is, you've just mentioned it. Well, we don't do planning at LifeYield. We work with lots of planning tools. And basically, we are the implementation side of what a planning tool will do. And as part of what we do at asset location, we also factor in tax harvesting, so to to minimize the need for that, because it's more efficient to do it through asset location. And then over time, as assets are consolidated, because that's what happens as people get older, closer to retirement, they tend to want to have it in one place, largely because of administrative reasons, but also, frankly, they'll they'll benefit by having it in one place in terms of after-tax returns. Basically, what kicks in next is the rebalancing to keep it in check, keep it the asset allocation in place while minimizing tax. So again, more tax alpha as you go. And then ultimately, it has to come out. 
And that's when essentially what you've developed and devised and implemented at many firms is an ability to look across the full household, look across Social Security, look across issues around RMD, around issues of Roth conversion, around all the multiple accounts that people accumulate over time. And again, your the bells and whistles and levers and dials and so forth, essentially what you're looking to do is minimize tax at every step of the way maximize social security benefits because the government gives you a raise between 62 and 70. So basically what you're doing is looking at all the factors and ultimately what happens is it's an API capability that maximizes retirement income. Did I capture that accurately? Yep. Maximizes retirement income also helps minimize taxes pre-retirement. We don't think of ourselves as purely a retirement income. It's not purely a retirement income play when it comes to income sourcing although that may seem kind of counterintuitive. A lot of what we've learned from our early days in doing retirement income was that some of the techniques that we put in place during retirement to get extra tax efficiency, like asset location, really work well pre-retirement as well. And they just help set up the portfolio for an efficient drawdown. Well, our time grows short and with our audience, I'm sure in rapt attention to all the ways that we can help maximize retirement income, want to share with our audience in terms of what we've been discussing? Sure. So one would be, I think, tax harvesting is well-established and it's a valuable exercise, but it's made more valuable when you spread it across multiple accounts to the extent that you can. And the higher frequency is often better too, rather than it being something that's based on a client request. Running tax loss harvesting in an opportunistic way is a great way to do it. And that definitely builds tax efficiency. So that would be number one. Uh, Number two would be um, asset location. Asset location is a tricky thing to implement. There are a lot of guidelines out there as to how to implement it and what are good asset classes to place in different account types. But as soon as you get into the weeds of a client portfolio, where they've got different tax rates, they've got different account capacities and potentially different investment preferences, certainly different risk levels, then it becomes more difficult to put into practice. So it's really powerful across multiple accounts because of the ability to increase after-tax return, really minimize those taxes, not just pre-retirement, but in retirement as well. So that's the second point I would make. And then I guess the third one would be really what we were just talking about around putting it all together. So whether it's tax harvesting, portfolio level rebalancing, where I mean across accounts, asset location, bringing accounts, bringing new assets across with a tax efficient transition, and then running income sourcing in an efficient way where it's thinking about different tactics to help save on taxes and boost bequest goals and boost income goals. All of these things play off each other. And it is important, we think, certainly I think, to have that income sourcing role as something that sits between planning and execution. A lot of people have planning, a lot of people have execution, and that little bit in in between the two is sometimes a bit fuzzy. So that's really where we think there's a lot of power in income sourcing. As an API. Yeah, we haven't mentioned it explicitly, but I'll just underscore the fact that taxes are the single biggest cost an investor incurs over the course of their lifetime and more than all the rest combined. So taxes matter. 
I'm interested to hear what you're going to say this time around. You're a man of many talents and many interests. So as we do each week, my favorite question, which is uh, what is something you do outside of work that you're excited or passionate about and people might find interesting or surprising? Tell us. About this question, I think about hobbies because I do have a lot of hobbies. One that I've spent a lot of time on over the last 10 years or so is karate. I did it for a couple of years at college in England and let it sit for 20 years, I think before uh, my daughter ended up getting invited to a friend's birthday party that happened to be at a karate dojo just north of where we now live. And so I got roped into it, got on the mailing list, and then I thought, okay, rather than taking my daughter to the class, I'll participate in the class. So now, 10 years later, I'm a second-degree black belt going for my third degree, and I do a lot of teaching. When you get to the more senior levels... It's less about the technical aspects of karate for yourself, and it's more about passing it on to other people, which is really a satisfying thing when you, you're teaching somebody something that's pretty precise. So yeah, that's, that's the other thing that uh, nobody knows. Well, I am not surprised you are a man of many talents, certainly around uh, what we've described here in the podcast, but also your uh, classical baritone and your uh, black belt karate. There's probably five other things we haven't covered, but Again, it's really been a pleasure to spend this time with you. Thanks for your insights and perspective. For our audience, if you've enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share what we're doing here at Wealth Tech on Deck. We are available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again, Martin. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Jack. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck, our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by LifeYield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com. <laughs>